All right. So we were just talking a little bit pre-show about the life box. And it's something that I've started adding since I went on your show. It's something I've started adding into my morning morning journaling practice. Um, and it's always interesting, right? Because you find that you start pulling the thread on something and then three pages later, you're like, whoa, how did I end up at this childhood memory or whatever, right? right. Um, so I pulled a card for us to start with as like a groundbreaker question for you. Oh, this is that. 122. Do you call them degrees? I do because I consider 180 and you've made like a 180 turn. Oh, I love that. And I can't believe I didn't pick up on that in the 180 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> That's great. Okay. So the card is actually identify five obstacles that you've overcome up to this point. And then I think here's the kicker is what's the wisdom that you've gained. So I was thinking mm. in, in your journey, like maybe start, start us talking about like one of the real formidable obstacles that you've had to face in your life and your career. And, and as the show goes on, we'll talk a lot about like what your career has entailed and how that's led to these products. Um, but yeah, could you take us to like the ground floor of a, uh, oh shit, how do I get out of this? Yeah. So I love that you started here for so many reasons. One, it's going to and this is why I was so excited about this podcast. Cause I just knew, like I felt it. I'm like, he's going to push me in a way that maybe other people don't just because of, of who he is. Um, and so in answering your question, actually, one of the things I'm going to do is talk about something I've, I've literally never talked about before on any podcast, which is first that, you know, one of like the hurdles that I've, I've just sort of had to overcome in my own life, especially as somebody who talks so much about resilience and overcoming obstacles is this imposter syndrome of who am I to talk about that? Because I don't have one. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's, it's sort of like this, well, I don't feel like I've had this big T trauma. You know, I wasn't bullied in school. Like I, I never, I never got in a car accident. Like there, you know, it's like that to me, this big sort of obvious shiny, um, experience of overcoming an obstacle hasn't been there. And so one of, which is kind of interesting because that in itself has become the obstacle for me, which is like, how do I be in integrity talking about resilience when it has felt like, and I'm not saying it is, but it has felt like I have not really had this like super intense and deep and challenging obstacle to overcome. Um, that being said, I, one of the biggest obstacles that I've had to overcome actually is my own attachment to the success of my parents. Um, my parents started a film festival in Colorado that is now hailed as one of the most important film festivals of our time. It's called the Telluride Film Festival. And <laughs> many have. Yeah. And for so long, you know, I just, I idealized my parents for so long. And I often um, wondered, like, how am I going to do better than this? You know, how am I going to um, move past what they did? Because that's what so many parents want, right? It's like they want, they not only want their child to be successful, but they want, the, they want their child to go above and beyond what they did. And my parents never verbalized that with words. Um, and I would say they didn't even send me that message through actions. I mean, they really 
wanted me to find what I wanted to do, not necessarily think about what they did and then do more. Um, but oftentimes in my like young adulthood, I would sort of use them and their success to pretend that that's why I was successful. Um, and so one of the obstacles that I've had to overcome, which is certainly this internal dialogue obstacle is really understanding and giving myself credit for, for what I've achieved and what I've created in my life and detached from their success. Um, and I often used to find and feel like the only way that I was interesting is if I talked about my parents, because what they did was so interesting. And so how on earth could I be interesting when what they did was like so shiny and cool, you know? Um, so I think, and I've never talked about that before. I've talked about it with my therapist and my husband probably knows. I don't even know if my parents know, but that really, um, in, in like my, you know, full most true self is probably the biggest obstacle I've had to overcome. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So there's a couple of things I'd love to unpack from that um, story. I think for a lot of people that they don't realize the degree to which their inner narrative, maybe inner critic, but the narrative in which that's taking the story that's taking place in their head is creating an obstacle to who they're actually here to be. And so then my next question is, how did you become aware of that? I think I became aware of it when I started doing my work in private practice because it was there when I was sitting with clients. None of my clients cared what my parents did for a living. <laughs> None of them asked, you know, like, right, right. you know, the, it, the, the, the entire beginning sessions of our work was all about them. And if, you know, typically in the initial sessions of my work with clients, I will say, you know, if you ever have questions about, about me, feel free to ask, you know, I, I have very good boundaries. So if I don't feel comfortable answering, I'll just tell you that. And if, um, and if I do, I'll answer and nobody ever asked, um, and so I think it was then that I really started to first notice um, whether or not I wanted to find a way to drop that in somewhere, you know, kind of inauthentically. Mm. Um, but more Im importantly, maybe I began to really think about like, well, who, who am I? You know, who, who is this person that's sitting with clients and trying to do the work that she's wanted to do for so long um, and is finally getting the opportunity to do. And this, this narrative of me being important because my parents are important, like doesn't fit here. Like it, 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 there is no place for it here in this room, in this space, in this container with this person who's coming to me because there's something I have to offer. So I think that's when I really um, started to begin to tackle that narrative, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So you start to like almost objectively notice yourself in certain situations and then you start putting the puzzle pieces together. It's interesting too that you asked like, well, who is this person that's got what they want? And, you know, I think, man, that's the question to me that, 
it's not, I had, I had a person ask me a couple days ago, he was like, how do I know if I am, if I am my true self? How do I know mm-hmm. if I'm my highest self? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my question was like, well, who's I, like, who's asking? What, who, oh, I love that. Right. I mean, who is, I mean, how many of, you know, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. So I'm trying to point out that there's an absurd co- complexity to that question. And also it's like this sort of endless well of growth and development and sounds like the one that you really started taking when you got serious about who yeah. you were. Yeah. 100%. And I would say that it's still, it's still on my mind often. Um, one of the reasons I think too, is because like what they did for a living was weaved into the fabric of our family. You know, we talked about it at dinner. I mean, it was, it was, it was, we often sort of referred to the festival as like a third sibling. So I think for me, it's like so in etched into who I feel like I am in so many ways. Um, and so I've tried to unravel that and, you know, the, and then there's this other part of me that's, that's, in my detachment from it, tried to grapple with also, but what's okay to be attached to, you know, Mm -hmm. like what, what is, what is okay for me to, to consider as part of my identity. Um, And that, I mean, I mean, that's a process too, because, you know, it's, it's, as you grow up as an adult and then you have children and you become deeper entrenched in your marriage and your role as a spouse, you know, it's, it's like one identity maybe sort of becomes smaller and the other becomes bigger. And then a life event happens and that one then becomes bigger. And like, it all is fluid and changing sometimes. So, you know, it's just, it's always a process. Yeah. This feels like that to me feels like one of the places where the modern person really, gets hung up in life. And I don't know if you've noticed this with your clientele and the work that you do, but just staying supple in your ability to pivot through different purposes in life and wear different hats. And like, I think we're all, I did a show on this actually earlier this week or something, but the idea that like, we are always kind of looking for our purpose in life. Like we're looking for the one purpose that we can hang our hat on. And then our life is kind of inviting us to all of these different purposes at different times and which we have to prioritize different aspects of ourselves. Like sometimes we have to be the parent and sometimes we have to be the business owner. And um, have you found that one, have you found that that is a place where people tend to get caught And two, Have you, how, how do you kind of balance that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I for sure agree with you. And I think part of that um, too, in my experience and some of what I'm seeing with my clients is because everything feels so public now, you know, through Instagram, through Facebook, the last year, you know, I was just saying to somebody today when I was doing a couple session, they were in a different room of their house. And I was like, Oh, I get to experience a new background today. But you know, when else would I get to see their house? Like that's, that's it, you know, it's like some of these boundaries that we've had, um, whether through technology or through happenstance and circumstance have become diluted. Um, and so I think especially as individuals make particular declarations on social media or through these sort of more public platforms, you know, it's like they 
they become overly attached to that declaration and have a difficult time becoming flexible in their own thinking, in their own being, in their own relating. And some of that makes sense in the way that, you know, it's, um, we say something over and over and over and over to ourselves and we begin to believe it and attach more to it and believe it and attach more to it, you know, but I do think that, that individuals can get caught there and, you know, I guess in, in my work and certainly in my own life, one of the things that I try to highlight for people is that growth is awesome and change is awesome. And, you know, one of the thing, one of, I think the worst things that we can do for ourselves is believe we're finished, you know, in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this often too, in my work with families and couples is there's often this reference to you know, well, you used to be this person or, you know, when I'm working with parents, it's like, well, my kiddo, she used to be this. And I'm like, well, right. But now she's 20 years older and like, we're not there anymore, you know, or, or we're right. But now he lost his job. And so he's not that anymore. So how do we meet him where he is? Or how do we meet her where she is? So I think, I think from that perspective, you know, I, I try and highlight really the opportunity in growth. Um, but also that because life is fluid, we have to be too. Otherwise, um, we can get caught up in our own disease, mental disease, physical disease, spiritual disease. Mm. It seems like what, what you're saying to you, if you meet somebody where they're at, it seems like then you give them permission to grow into who they're going to be or here to be into something more full or expansive. And at the, the opposite of that token would be, I guess, if you you constantly remind people or yourself of the past. It's like you, you unknowingly like don't give yourself permission to, to continue to expand is what it sounds like. Yeah. I love that. I think that that's a, that's a great way of kind of piecing that together. And I think that's true. Hmm. So, so what is it that brings you to this resilience work? If, um, as you said, like you, you haven't had this like massive sort of, uh, I mean, life is inherently traumatizing, I think, to some degree, like we're always sort of unprepared and not ready for what's about to happen. Um, but what true. is it that that brings you to this this kind of work? Well, it's interesting because I, in my work, you know, the bulk of my work for many years was specifically with individuals who have eating disorders. And um, that is a, a, a very difficult disorder to treat, not that, not that the others aren't. Um, but there are some components of it that make it particularly hard. You know, um, it's, it's in so many ways rooted in the relationship with oneself, but symptomatology festers in the relationship with food. We cannot do without food. So we have to sort of change the relationship with food while we're changing the relationship with self. There's just so many different facets that I think are involved. And I think what I, what I noticed in doing that work, and this was definitely a process and happened over time. And I would say really began to crystallize in the last five years of my work is really realizing that, you know, these particular modalities that I was taught to treat eating disorders, CBT, DBT, ACT, all of these acronyms, right. They paled in comparison, um, when, I talked about resilience and Mm. I honestly don't even know how, actually, no, that's, I do know how it came up Um, because eating disorders have, shame is everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere, right? And so um, a lot of the work that 
I do with my clients around shame isn't about trying to get rid of the shame because it's human. I mean, shame is part of the human experience. It's about becoming resilient to it. And so as I started to use that word more and more, um, I began to recognize that just even the word resilient, even when we take shame out of it and talk about anything else, um, became, was really powerful. And, you know, when, when I started to highlight for clients that like, even the fact that they're in my room, having this conversation with me right now demonstrates a level of resilience because recovery is just about getting better, but resilience is about getting better. And then some, and that's the way that I see it. Um, and they wanted the, then some, they didn't want to just go back to how things were. They wanted 2.0. And so, so I think that's really sort of how I started to begin to weave in much more work around resilience and language around resilience and focusing on that part um, of the relationship with my clients. I think that's one of the best things that's happening to the world right now, though it's all helter skelter. I think the, the fact that like we're having an opportunity to rebuild in a 2.0. I don't think we are necessarily, not everyone's taking that invitation, Yeah. Um, but, but the opportunity is certainly presenting itself. And I think that that's um, inherently good. So you just brought up something that I've never really heard this idea, uh, resilience to shame. Mm. I, I'm fascinated by this because shame is something that, I mean, it's just, it is like our go-to in this culture to make things happen. Um, Mm. this will be kind of political. I'm not really meaning it to be, but during uh, Thanksgiving, I watched Governor Polis, we're both in Colorado, mm-hmm. give a talk about how like you you can't, you know, um, gather this year for for Thanksgiving out of your household, all, you know, all the rules. Um, but I thought it was interesting that like the very first thing he went to is like, but you know, if someone dies, it's on you. And like, it was like an instant sort of shame in the press conference. And me and my fiance were just chatting about like how, quickly we go to shame maybe not even out of malice because it just seems like the tool that's like the most readily available Mm -hmm. so this idea of us becoming resilient to shame is something that i don't know i'm intrigued by i don't know if you want to say a little more about it but yeah i mean i think from my perspective one of the things that uh has i've really learned in my work with clients is, you know, when we unpack shame. So when someone, for example, comes into my office and, and we've, we've been unpacking it a little bit, and then we kind of go deeper into, you know, what are the activating agents that really make them feel like they're not good enough? Where does that come from? What self-limiting beliefs are immediately triggered when shame shows up in their body? What does shame look like in their body? Like when we dive into all the kind of deeper things, one of the things that I've, begun to recognize is that when individuals do that work and begin to learn more about their shame, they don't just then when shame happens, um, you know, shield it. They, they, this is sort of hard to articulate, but it's almost like they let it happen, but use it as an opportunity. Um, and I guess, and that's the resiliency part for me is that, is that, okay, shame is showing up for me right now. Why? Like what's going on right now that's activating this shame? And I think that is such an important question for all of us to consider um, because 
then when we know that, you know, for example, lots of mothers have lots of shame around motherhood. Like I'm not a good enough mother. Like she's packing all these veggies for lunch. I've got PB and J, you know, like all this stuff. Right. Um, but when we understand, for example, what that shame is about and why it matters to us in that moment, we can then use that knowledge and wisdom the next time to do something different or do something better or do something that even allows for growth and uh, transformation, I would say. Um, so, you know, I think for me, shame resiliency really speaks to, you know, when shame arrives, we, we get to use that shame in a way that actually serves us rather than, um, makes us suffer. Yeah. It keeps us small. I find that that's like the primary sort of mode like thing that shame does, at least to me, I think that's like one of my core wounds is shame, yeah. core wounding patterns. Um, and I really, really keeps me small. And then, you know, I, I tend to realize I, I'll identify with the thing that shames, like I'll identify with the tyrant, which mm. of course then I become the victim because I'm both. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, so what does that look like then using that shame for somebody? So I think, oh, I feel like I'm going to get myself in trouble for saying this if another mental health provider is listening, but I think, I think there can be useful parts of shame. Um, I think for example, shame sometimes shows up because of our own fractured sense of self. And so I'll just use motherhood as an example again, because it's easy. Cause it's the one that I struggle with, you know? So if, if shame shows up for me as a mother, um, and I recognize it's happening in my body because shame shows up physically so often for so many of us. And if we can even just know that what it feels like in our body, that is such a, an incredible, um, tool for us to become resilient to shame. So if shame shows up for me in my body around motherhood and I begin to recognize like, okay, th this is shame that's showing up, then I get to reflect a little bit. And if I don't move into that shame spiral, if I don't take the bait of the shame and agree with the narrative that I'm a bad mother, I'm not doing it right, you know, all of that. If I, if I can sort of move into a more intentional and meaningful position, which let's be honest, I can't always. Um, but when I do, then I get to think about like, okay, am I feeling this way? Because maybe there is a part of me that wants to do better. You know, maybe there actually is a part of me that, that feels like I'm not good enough because I'm recognizing that there's something that, I'm doing that's out of alignment with who I want to be as a mother. Um, like I think it allows for one of my favorite words, curiosity around is, is there something like, is this shame nagging at me for a reason? Because I think so often what we've been taught is shame can be there without purpose. You know, that shame can just show up to drag you down, to make you feel small, um, you know, to take you away from relationships, to take you away from success, to take you away from wisdom, knowledge, all of those things. But if I can get curious enough and and hold also compassion in one hand and ask myself, like, is this shame here for a reason? Because there's something nagging at me that I haven't been paying attention to that maybe I need to pay attention to. I think that can be a really useful strategy. Amazing. I have two questions about that. Um, <laughs> well, Casey, okay, so you brought up this idea of like, 
if I don't take the bait, right? It's Mm -hmm. like then all of a sudden, instead of the spiral downward, you get to like assess it and start to ask like, okay, what's coming up here? What's going on? I find though um, that we in Western culture, and I actually won't even project this onto the culture. I'll just say me. I have a hard time meeting myself with compassion once the once the critic begins the critic that would send me in the shame spiral um and i i'm curious like what is it in us that keeps us from meeting ourselves with that compassion that's a great question Mm. i mean i guess i would say i think part of it is our attachment to victimhood or suffering Mm -hmm. you know what would you say I think so. Yeah, I yeah. think I think so. I think I that it's so hard. Um, I, I want to get into this idea of like questioning yourself and, and using that as a resilience tool because um, it's come up a lot in your as you talk. I find that questioning yourself can be really hard because you have all of these like sort of biases to preserve the self image that you've been running on, not necessarily so the true. one you even want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I. I, I certainly identify with the victim far too often, but I don't even know that I'm doing it. You know, mm-hmm. I just am it mm-hmm. um, oftentimes. So I, I would say that it seems to me that we have these biases. I don't know if they're for survival. I think they're for survival in order to keep us safe and who in the, in the picture of who we think that we are. Mm-hmm. Um, because then, you know, you shatter that and it sort of starts to shatter your sense of coherence about everything. And so I think we have these like boundaries around what will allow ourselves to question about our life and who we are. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that there's some sort of unconscious barrier that keeps you from asking the right questions of yourself. Because it's interesting when you do question it and you don't take the bait, it's like you get this like sort of rush of life. I've yeah. noticed it's like yep. you, there's all this life trapped under your shame. And, and if you don't take that bait, you get this sense of like freedom mm-hmm. that you didn't even, you know, it's like we're, we're living in a, a jail that's so complete. We don't even, we think we're free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So true. It's yeah. I, to me too, I guess, I guess some, sometimes many of us at any point in time in our life, doesn't have to sort of be like, you know, one person, this is just the way they are, that person, this is just the way they are. But I think that we can also like the idea of being compassionate or the act of being compassionate can be so deeply uncomfortable, you know, and the idea of being gentle and kind to oneself, um, can just be really scary. I think for some people, like, like the, the resistance that shows up in my office when, when even I'm being kind to some of my clients or I'm encouraging them to be kind is so palpable, you know, that it's like, it's, it's just, it doesn't even feel like it's, possible or in their wheelhouse. And so I think sometimes that too is, you know, to do some of this, this work and to get curious in a way that's, you know, compassionate, like it's not easy. I mean, it's not easy. And so, and I don't even mean it's not easy because it's like, you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot of thought and energy, like physically it feels 
uncomfortable. Like literally just this morning, I was having a little bit of a beat myself up moment. And, and I was just thinking to myself, like, gosh, just like chill out. You're doing fine. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But like, even that was, even that felt uncomfortable. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. You just illuminated something for me. Um, Something my fiance and I talk about a lot is like the American motto is really like suppress and achieve, like just shove it down and do better. Right. And (laughs) I think um, as you say that I'm realizing you know, because I, I wonder a lot about this. Like you, you, you see the narratives in the media and we're so far from compassion. Um, it's so far from us though. It sounds yes. like in what you're saying, it's just so foreign to our worldview and how we think we need to be successful here and what we need to do that. I think for me, if I'm thinking about it, honestly, part of me thinks, well, if I'm compassionate with myself, like, well, then I'm just going to let myself off the hook for everything. And then where do I end up right now? I'm not exactly. even working hard. And, um, well, and I think this is, I think, I think one of the things that I try and uh, highlight in my work is the difference between compassion and condoning, because I think that they are different, but I think that we have got them confused. You know, for example, take 2020 for as, you know, um, as a canvas on which we could paint many of the pathologies of what yeah. we're talking about. But, um, you know, if there was somebody, for example, politically that I disagreed with, um, and I showed compassion for them, oftentimes I might I would get comments from other people. How can you like? How can you support that person? You know, and I, I would try and distinguish between me having compassion for their pain, which, by the way, is a similar experience to my pain. Our process of getting there is different, but the pain itself is very similar. Like that, that is where I'm compassionate. It doesn't necessarily mean like it has nothing to do with condoning, you know, but we, we've, we've made them synonymous. So for example, Mm -hmm. if, if, if I, you know, say something to my children, that's a bit off color that feels um, like maybe I was being too harsh. Maybe I was just raising my voice a touch too much. And I come in with a compassionate lens. That doesn't mean that I'm saying, Oh, Laura, it's no big deal. Not a big deal. You know, what it means is I'm saying, wow, you're overwhelmed. Like that you are overwhelmed. Your pot is boiling over. And what can you do different next time? You know, like sort of like that empathy there um, and self-compassion, but not necessarily like it's okay. No big deal. You know, keep going. Right. Exactly. That, that's perfect. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm realizing as you're explaining that, I'm like, well, that's exactly what I'm doing when I'm afraid to be compassionate with myself. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, the truth is like you're, at least for me, like your incur- internal constitution is not going to allow you to just condone garbage behavior at some point. Um, That's right. Yeah. Interesting. So a couple places I wanted to go with that, but I, I think I want to move on because I want to get into this idea of curiosity. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at the beginning of this, um, when I asked you about shame, it was interesting because you're like, oh, I, I hope no one picks up on or, or says something about this as a provider. And then you just basically say, well, I'm not going to demonize it. I'm just going to question it. And so that seems, I guess, antithetical to our worldview as well, because we're quick to demonize. We're quick to scapegoat. We're quick to like reject the problem onto other. Um, one, 
did you find that that was in your formal training as a clinical psychologist, this idea of not demonizing and just questioning? And like, I'm trying to figure out where did curiosity come up for you and start to be important? Yeah. So no, it's really interesting because I think so much of our formal training, or I, I mean, I can't speak to it now. It was 15 years ago, but at the time mine, um, you know, I went to a very clinical program and it was very psychodynamic. So very Freudian. Um, and oftentimes, you know, what you learn in courses and in classes, it's, is what's wrong with someone. And I get it. Like, you know, th that's, as psychologists, we often are there to treat dis-ease. Um, and so much of my work in the beginning when I was a psychologist, or I still am a psychologist, but was about, I think, picking out what's wrong with someone and then trying to fix it. Um, and I felt often like I was performing psychology rather than creating space. And I learned rather quickly that I wasn't really good at that. I think mm. part of it had to do with, um, I'm not very good at memorization. And so, you know, I would start down a path of like, well, that sounds like a cognitive distortion to me. And they'd be like, oh yeah, well, what, well, like what kind? And then I'd be like, shit, I don't remember the name. <laughs> um, you know, so, but, but I think that like, I began to I began to explore this idea of curiosity. And I remember actually there was a supervisor that I had when I was a postdoc fellow at a children's hospital. And I sat in on a family session that she was doing with parents and a child. And at the end of the session, she said something like, I, I just want you all to be curious about it until now. And the next time I saw you and when she's, I had never heard that before up until then. So that had been five years of training. I had literally never heard anyone say, I want you to be curious about it. And so when she said that, I thought to myself like, well, that's really interesting. And it just kept popping up for me randomly throughout my early work as a psychologist. And then I just probably around the same time that I started to realize that like all of these modalities from my perspective sort of paled in comparison to resiliency, I began to sort of explore this idea of what it was like to be curious with my clients instead of trying to fix my clients. Um, and it was like magic. I mean, it, it, when I say that, I don't mean like magically they healed, but it was like, I meant like the energy was magical. We were finally, me and my clients, it finally felt like we were collaborating together. And that's always, that was always such a more comfortable position for me. I understand that certainly my clients come to me because I'm a psychologist, because I have an expertise, because I have the training. Um, but to me, our relationship was so critical to any growth that would happen in the space. And it felt so much more intuitive for me to be curious and collaborative with my clients, exploring, you know, what they wanted and, and what they were looking for versus what I thought they might need. Yeah. So does it sound, it sounds to me a little bit like there's almost, uh, you, you were operating out of like a, a head space, like a cognitive space. And then you sort of sunk down into the heart a little bit, because if we're memorizing formulas and neuroses and, and patterns of behavior and 
and reciting them for people, like we're kind of assuming that they can then just through the intellect, get themselves to where they need to be. And when you create space for someone for them to like kind of move about in a curious fashion, it sounds like that's, that doesn't really feel like a, a cognitive, cognitively focused um, intervention. Does that feel right? Yes, totally. 100%. I mean, I think from my perspective also, so many of my clients were, were so intellectual already that to be cerebral with them, like didn't get them uncomfortable enough mm, for right. and growth to happen. Um, you know, I mean, so I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. It, it dropped us down into our body and allowed us to be more present and, and much more explorative, you know, and try and discover as opposed to try and find solution. Right, right. Yeah, or give solution. So it, yeah. it's interesting, too, because that's very much in line with the Western medicine model, right? It's like symptom, band-aid, totally. symptom, band-aid. Yeah, 100%. And I think, too, one of the things that that I, one of the things that I think about all the time, and this is from my training and I, I benefit my training significantly for this is understanding that my relationship with any of my clients has a parallel process to then what they do out in the world. And so, you know, if in the space that we create together, if there's curiosity in that space alone, then the goal is for there to be curiosity outside of that space, right? If there's empathy in that space, if there's accountability in that space, you know, then the goal is that they take that at the micro level and move it into the macro level. And so, you know, I think one of the other things that I try and do in my work is is acknowledge when I've got something wrong. Because again, like that allows for us to to explore and for them to bear witness to what some, what it's like for somebody to come into a space and apologize authentically. Like, I want to let you know that last week you were talking about something and I actually got really distracted. And I want to go back to that moment because I don't think I heard you, you know, like that, which for me, of course, is super vulnerable. Like I want to be all knowing and, you know, have all the answers and not show my limitations, but that happens. And so I think in that way, like with not only curiosity, but just even some of the other things that I do in my work with my clients, like if we can do that in the space together, then I believe that that can transfer outside of the space itself. Yeah. That, that to me feels really important. Like having a model relationship to infect the rest of your life. Yes. Mm -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And I like that because you're trained in it. So it's perfect. Um, <laughs> When you started giving yourself permission to be curious, I want to talk about, well, okay, so when you when you become aware that curiosity might be one of the things, and of course, you host the Curious Minds podcast, which I'll link up in the show notes of this episode for listeners, um, sort of a treasure trove of information on there. What was it like in the process of allowing yourself to be more curious? Did you go back and realize that you were a curious human all along, that you were, like, what, what was that like? I don't think it's interesting you asked that question because um, there have been a few podcasts that I've done recently with my guests or just um, that I've listened to where I've heard people say, you know, I was always a curious child. I, I actually don't think I was curious. I, I was I was a very anxious child, actually, <laughs> um, but I was an adventurous child. So I think in that way, you know, I I liked to explore and I liked to 
um, to, I like to create a lot. I loved to draw. I loved to do things with my hands. I love to make forts. I love to go outside and make little, you know, campfire type settings in the woods. Um, so I think in that way, you know, for me, being creative is always a curious process. And I, I think too, kind of in that same time with the resiliency and the curiosity popping up, I realized, and part of this was my own nagging, like something doesn't feel right here. Like I want more out of the work that I'm doing. Um, I started to really think about the space as, as more of a, as a creative container that we could use however we wanted to use. Um, and so for me, I think that's kind of where my curiosity comes from is my desire to be creative and create and my interest in discovery and adventure. Hmm. Do you think that you have to believe in some sort of eternal goodness in order to be curious? Like what I mean by that is like, do you have to trust that it's all going somewhere worth being or that there's something inherently redeemable or good about being here? Like, it seems to me that if you, I, I don't know, I, I wonder, I've been getting curious. I've been getting curious lately about like our first beliefs about what we're doing here. Like what the belief that everything else is laid on top of. Mm -hmm. And I wonder like, if we don't trust in the goodness of life, can we still be curious? That is an excellent question. And my gut and my intuition says, hmm, I think so. Still. Yeah. I think I, I think we really have to be curious about, I mean, not curious about, I think we have to trust that our contribution matters, I guess. Mm. Um, and maybe that's why I'm kind of thinking back to why curiosity can be hard for people and why compassion can be hard for people. I think people can have a real difficult time believing that they matter, that like their existence on this planet actually has meaning and impact. Totally. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. we have a like meaning crisis in our culture right now. Yeah. And I think, and I think many of us are sort of like attached to the verbiage of that, but maybe really like not, um, maybe not considering what that actually means for them in practice. Yes. Um, and I think the, what it means for them in practice is like the really scary part. Totally. I, so then this kind of brings up a natural follow on question, which is like, do you have to be curious in order to find your spot here in order to find your meaning, to find your place in such a chaotic world? Um, mm. And the reason I ask is because for me, it seems like this next step that I'm taking, like it might matter, but also it might just move me six inches to the right where I meet somebody who five years from now introduces me to a hobby who, you know, it, like I, I, think back to like what I've done and the things that have brought me innate meaning and I've tried to map them backwards and I've gotten to this place. It's like, I never could have ended up here. I, I couldn't even conceptualize mm. my life in this manner mm -hmm. if I didn't have the courage to sort of just keep being curious and then accepting the invitation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think though, 
I guess as I think about it, and actually as I go back to your question of like, were you always a curious person? I think that curiosity can show up differently. You know, and I think sometimes like when I talk about curiosity, and I mean this, this way, like the, the, the meta thinking, like the thinking about thinking and like Mm -hmm. the, you know, the metacognition and like the, the feeling about feeling. And, but I think that curiosity can unfold when we push ourselves to do hard things, when we do things that are like really out of our comfort zone. And I've been like running with actually what you said on my podcast, which was like, we're really good of getting outside of our comfort zone in our comfort zone. Yeah. In ways we're comfortable (laughs) getting uncomfortable. Yes, exactly. And like, because I think I love that you said that. And I've had many conversations with people after who, who have been like, well, no, but that's difficult for them. And I'm like, but that's still, it's still in their comfort zone, you know, but, but I think, um, so I think, you know, we can be curious without necessarily being intellectually curious. You know, we can, we can explore and go, move to various growth edges by doing, not just thinking. Um, So I think, I guess I would say that I think that's an important maybe thing that at least I would like to consider is, you know, can curiosity show up in different forms? Um, But I do think that regardless of what form it's showing up in, I think it's necessary. Yeah, it feels... Okay, I love that you you made that distinction because I think a lot of people dismiss themselves as not curious because they're not intellectually curious, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. maybe they even are and just don't even know what they're intellectually curious about. So, what mm-hmm. are what would subtle ways that curiosity shows up in our lives so that we could foster it if we're not the person? I'm really intellectually curious, so it's hard for me to imagine a different way of being. Yeah. So, so for example, if you're a runner. And you find yourself sometimes on your run on a trail and think, I wonder what that was like. That's curiosity. Like, I wonder what happens if I go over there, you know, like that's curiosity. Um, So I think, you know, or you're a painter and, you know, you're sitting with your canvas and you've got lots of blue hues and maybe some red tones in there. And you wonder like, I wonder what yellow would look like. That's curiosity, you know? And so I think, um, at least from my perspective, I think those are just maybe some small examples of what it could look like outside of, let me sit here and think about this and talk about this with my spouse or whatnot. Hmm. You asked me a question when I was on your show about being too curious. Is that, um, can you be too curious? Can it, can, is there a diminishing returns here? Can curiosity kill the cat? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, that has to come from somewhere. I know. Some cat somewhere died, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I get, I mean, I guess in practicality, I, I, I think you probably could. I mean, I, you know, and I guess the only reason I say that is because I think kind of with everything you can go too far. Um, I think with empathy, you can go too far, you know? Um, I, so I think, I think that probably, yes, what that would look like, I guess, I guess at some point we also, you know, especially for those of us who might be more intellectually curious than, you know, I'm not sure what we would call the other creatively curious maybe, or, um, adventure 
adventurous and curious. I don't know, but for some of us that trend towards intellectual curiosity, I guess I would say like, if we, if we remain stuck in curiosity and then we never try or we never do, um, I think then that could be a struggle. You know, it's, it's very much like, like therapy, you know, in some ways it's like, we can discuss this to death. Um, and actually we can get to a point where the discussion starts to not serve you anymore. Now you've, you've got to fly, you got to mm. go out and do. Um, so I guess maybe in that way it could. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Notice how I ended with a question mark. Like, not sure. <laughs> right. I'm on burgundy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. Are there any other resilience tools? I mean, we talked a little bit about compassion. We talked about curiosity. Those are very like, non-obvious tools for resilience. Mm. Um, is there any, is there any other sort of overlooked tools that we, we tend to miss the boat on in our, in our culture? I mean, I think I, I've, I talk about this a lot, so, um, I'll talk about it again, but I think, I think one of the ways that we can build emotional and mental resilience other than some, you know, doing the hard things and some of the things we talked about are actively having people in our lives that we disagree with and actively listening to watching or reading things that are really hard for us to watch, read, or listen to. Um, and I think that is really important because I think especially in a world right now where we can, um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the whole cancel culture term, but where we can cancel anything in our own life at any given time, you know, someone makes a comment on our Instagram posts, we can block them. Someone says something that we don't like on Facebook, we can delete them. Someone sends us an email that even we don't like reading, we can delete it. You know, it's like we can cancel so many things around us that feel uncomfortable and put up barriers to them being a greater presence in our life. And I think that destroys us. Um, and so I think if we can have people in our life that we actively disagree with, but have respect for, or at least are even able to tolerate. And that doesn't mean they have to be your best friend, but I um, am a big believer that we should not just have people in our lives who value what we value, think the way we think, feel the way we feel. Um, I think that really matters. And I think that brings a level of emotional and mental resilience because you get uncomfortable in any of those situations, right? In an actual interaction with that human or in listening to that podcast that aggravates you and enrages you or tolerating that disrespectful comment on Instagram. And then we figure out what to do next, either with it or just with the feeling inside. So I think that's, that's one thing that I would, I would say builds um, mental and emotional resilience that we need to do more of. So I know we're getting close to time here. That brings up a um, a question for me. I find it, first of all, I totally agree. So living in an echo chamber, it's like, how could you possibly grow, right? You couldn't, right? This is right. like a, the leader that surrounds himself with yes men, right? That's, that's, that's Hitler. Right. That's what he did, mm -hmm. exactly. right? So that's how you crumble. Um, at the same time, like – I'll find myself like, even if I'm around, like someone puts the media on or something, there's a part of me that's like, no, like you do not get space in my head. You're like just spouting garbage. And like, I have to have a boundary around 
the narratives that I allow in my head. And, and so, and it seems to me that because we're marketed to between four and 11,000 times per day, like people are constantly vying for bandwidth. How do you balance the like personal boundary of I'm not going to live in an echo chamber. And at the same time, um, not everyone gets a seat you know, at, uh, my internal table. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Not that you're less human because of that, but because like I only have so much bandwidth and I got things to do with my life. And <laughs> totally, I, I think we, I think we have to be selective. Um, and I think, and I think it's almost like we have to carve out that space. Um, you know, like, I'll give an example. There's a podcast that I listened to and there was a guest on that podcast who I find difficult to listen to. Um, I think his views are small minded. I think that he, he, you know, part of me wants to ask like, you know, all these things come to my, like, you know, what I would say if I met him. Um, but I, I saw his episode up on the podcast feed and I, you know, I had to actively select the best day that I was going to listen to that. You know, mm -hmm. I had to intentionally like purposefully know, okay, this could impact me all day long. You know, after I listened to this, I could have that irrit irritating energy kind of coursing through my, my blood all day long, my veins. So I'm going to pick a day. I'm going to pick a weekend when I don't have to work and see clients and I'm going to pick a day when I know my husband is going to be around so I can download, right? Like what I just heard. So I think when we're going into the arena, so, so to speak, we, I think it's important to be intentional, um, so that we can maintain those boundaries because I think you bring up a really good point. And this is why, you know, it's like for me, I'm, I think it's really important, for example, for me to leave comments up on my Instagram that I might not agree with, but I have absolutely turned the notifications off on my Instagram because I'm not, I'm not interested in being punched in the face randomly at 2 PM, right before a session with a client. You know what I mean? It's like, totally. that's a boundary for me, but, but I, but, but the other boundary is like, if someone has an opposing view, I want to I see it and respect it as long as it's respectful to me. Um, and I want others to see it too. Like I want them to see that, that, that someone might not agree with my post or something of that nature. Yeah, that's great. It, it seems like so, so many of us confuse our opinion with the ultimate truth. And then, mm -hmm. you know, then there's no room for anyone else like to be here. They, if anyone right. disagrees, there's no room for them. And then, um, yeah. So that just, I think there's a level of emotional maturity that that really takes. I, agree. Um, mm -hmm. I really appreciate you spending your time here. So I have one more question for you, but before we get into that, what's the best place for people to um, follow along with you, support what you're doing, learn more about your work and or work with you? Yeah. So my website would definitely be a place to, you know, see more of what I'm doing. It's just www drlarapence.com. I forgot for a second what it was. And it's L-A-R-A -A for those people listening, not L-A-U-R-A. -A. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, same handle at Dr. Laura Pence. And then if you're interested in Lifebox, which is what you referenced in the beginning of the podcast, pulling that card and that question, um, you can go to L-I-G-H-F-B-O-X.com um, and take a look at the box that we've got to offer there. One thing I want to say about the Lifebox is if you're someone that's like, struggle with curiosity or even struggle to find out how it could be beneficial, 
the cards are a perfect starting place because that's mm -hmm. what they are. They're just inquiries into your life for 180 days. And so it'll sort of instill that curiosity. So I love that. That's right. Uh, if you could have morning coffee with anybody in the world, uh, dead or alive, uh, who would you have coffee with and what would they, what would you want to talk about? So full circle hour here, uh, my parents, I haven't seen them in a year and a half and oh, I miss them. I just miss them so much. Mm. Um, and I think if I'm being totally transparent, it would be my parents maybe 30 years ago when they're my age. <laughs> so if we could do like a time warp, so it's not only dead or alive, right. but a time warp. Totally. Um, no rules. And I would, I would just want to, talk to them about what is it like to parent right now? What is it, you know, how are you navigating this? How are you doing this? Um, but that's when that's, I mean, that those are the first people that totally came to my mind and I just miss, I just miss them. It's so hard to not, to not see these people you love right now. Totally. Yeah. I could appreciate that. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and like just sharing your journey and your expertise with the audience. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you for your thoughtful, thoughtful questions.